Hello, and thank you for tuning in to The Christian Skeptic. I'm your host, Sean Kerwin, and as always, it's my mission to take an honest look at our questions about Christianity through the lens of logic and reason. I'm not here to preach at you, just to start a conversation with you. I hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of The Christian Skeptic. In this episode, we will be continuing the conversation and interview we started last episode with Gregory Coles. We left off with the question of why choose the life of the single gay Christian? Why choose celibacy? Why choose to follow Jesus? This discussion has been probably one of my favorite discussions I've had on the show thus far. Greg is such a joy to talk to, and you can really tell he has thought out his position. So let's uh, pick right back up where we left off and finish hearing Greg's response to that question. And so there's a couple kind of big questions hanging over this discussion still. Uh, There's the question of celibacy and why that is to your, to, to the best of your ability, why that is the right path forward uh, for you and, and perhaps for anyone else struggling with this, though we don't want to project on everyone, uh, but in all of your research and your studies, why that's the path forward. But before I think we get to that, uh, I mentioned when we were emailing that a listener had asked uh, a, a particular question on this issue. And I thought it'd be an interesting one for us to discuss, particularly given the research, the knowledge and the background you have. And that is, the question of David. Why do you think, and and maybe we can just kind of go back and forth on this one, but why do you think it was okay in the Bible for David to have multiple wives, which as we just mentioned in the part one of this interview is sexual immorality. It's porneia, right? Like there's, there's no, there's no denying that having multiple wives is sexual immorality. And yet David was still called a man after God's own heart. So why is that seemingly condoned in the Bible when gay marriage, a, a committed uh, homosexual marriage between two people who stay married for their whole lives and never cheat on each other, why would that be not condoned or perhaps condemned? Although, I mean, that's that's kind of a loaded word. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a it's a great question. I I would want to note first of all, just just in the interest of like being as absolutely textually accurate as we can. Um, I don't think the word porneia uh, would have been used to describe uh, polygamy. Um, at least I'm not, I'm not aware of that happening. And, and uh, I, I could certainly be proven wrong on that question. Um, uh, but uh, for instance, polygamy is, is not mentioned in, in Leviticus 18. Um, there are, so having said that, um, there, there is a clear indication um, throughout scripture uh, that uh, polygamy, marrying uh, multiple, well, usually one man, multiple women, uh, is, is, not, uh, is not God's, God's ideal intention for <laughs> marriage, right? And, 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 we, and we know, for instance, um, that when, when God tells the kings like, hey, don't, don't marry a lot, of, a lot of women, or, you know, they'll, they'll sort of draw your heart away, um, sure, and then yeah. Solomon, you know, marries a bajillion <laughs> foreign women, and God's like, "Told you so." Um, so, uh, and and you know, and and we see we see in the New Testament, um, we see this this move towards saying like, "Hey, like it's it's really important that the people who are leading the church be the the husband of one wife is the the way some transition translations render it, 
a one woman man uh, is more or less what the, what the Greek says. So there's, the, there's this move to say, hey, polygamy is a thing that has happened, and yet it, it has never been God's ideal, um, and, and it continues now to not be God's ideal. Uh, I, I think there are, there are a few lessons that I, that I hope we see from that. The first is we absolutely see the Holy Spirit at work in people whose lives do not in every way perfectly reflect obedience to God. And yeah, absolutely. You know, with David, you know, I mean, certainly this includes, uh, you know, he's he's marrying more women than would be wise, but there are also plenty <laughs> of other things about the life of David that are like, this is not exactly an ideal role model. You know, the 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 part, yeah, the the the, the part where he, you know, sexually assaults a woman and then decides to murder her husband, like th- these are not encouraged things in scripture. Um, and so how can we how can we read a story like that and and yet see David described as a man after God's own heart. It seems to me absolutely true that God has a glorious amount of gracious power to work in people who are following him imperfectly. And so I think we see that to be true in the way God is at work in David and, and plenty of other polygamous people. I think I think we uh, we can also see that evidenced for those of us who maybe in a variety of ways in our lives now in the 21st century are follow, falling short of what might be God's ideal for our lives. And so I would say, if if you're theologically okay with God being at work in all kinds of people's lives, even when they haven't gotten things perfectly right, but you somehow have drawn a line that says, oh, this doesn't include gay people. Like, Gay people who uh, decide that the Lord is calling them into a same-sex marriage, that's the point at which a line is drawn. And those people categorically cannot experience the Holy Spirit. Categorically, there is no saving grace for them. Uh, I, I worry that this is an uneven application of our theology. And I think it's uneven mm. because we tend to extend <clears throat> more theological grace toward the people who sin like we do because we tend to prefer the company of people who sin like we do. So uh, I, I think I think it absolutely raises an important question, um, but uh, yeah, I would say uh, theologically, I think we see we see a vision for both uh, the ideal of uh, single single man and single woman being <laughs> married together, and I think we also see the ideal of that relationship being between male and female. Um, both of those things seem to me to be threads that are true in Scripture, um, and yet God's glorious grace. Um, seems to reach in in a wide variety of places. Yeah, no doubt. And and I think it also, you know, that question, you almost have to pose a couple of questions back on yourself when you ask it. And I think first and foremost, the question is, okay, sure, David did it. You can probably commit sexual sin and receive God's grace, but is that the life you want to live? Because actually read David's life and there was a ton of pain. You mentioned the whole incident with Bathsheba and Uriah, that doesn't end well. Like David doesn't end, you know, saying, woohoo, I got one over on God. <laughs> like, and he totally let me get away with the sin. God did not let David get away with that sin. And so, you know, if, if we're going to play this comparison game and say, okay, well, I can sin like David. Well, yeah, but you're going to reap some consequences like David as well. And not only that, but David's full potential that he wanted uh, in God wasn't realized because his son had to build the temple. Right. And you know, it's not explicitly said in the Bible, but you have to wonder with as much sin as David committed, had he 
really, truly tried to follow the law as best he could. And of course, none of us can perfectly. That's why we need a savior in the first place. How much more potential could he have had though, right? And so it's you have to ask yourself that question first and foremost is, okay, David did it. Do you want that life though? You know, um, or do you want the life that God promises? And do you want to see if he is faithful to fulfill those promises, right? Just spoiler alert, he is, (laughs) Um, as we know. And, uh, and then second, I think it also raises the question of what's, what's called out and what's recorded in the Bible isn't always condoned in the Bible, you know? And I think back to, back to the book of judges, right? Like, there's, there's the Levite who like chops up his concubine and mails all her body parts to the rest of the tribes of Israel. Right. And it's like, clearly that is not condoned at all. (laughs) Um, but, but it is a common objection and misconception about the old Testament is that, well, you know, God's just this harsh God who condones all these things and condones all these sins that we can't, we can't have today. And it's, it's not true at all. It's a narrative. It's a story. So they're recorded. And again, (laughs) okay, fine. Go commit those sins. Do you want that life? You know, do you, do you want to chop up a concubine and (laughs) mail all her parts to all 50 States or whatever? Like that's, that's not going to end very well for you at all. And so there is, there's a a record of sins. There's a record of stories in the Bible. And then there's a recommendation from God of how your story could go, right? That's Deuteronomy 28. If you diligently obey and heed my voice, blessed will you be in the city, blessed will you be in the country, blessed will your kneading bowl be, your basket be, right? And then the, ha- the second half of the chapter is if you don't, cursed will you be in the city, curse. And there's this, it's a long chapter of blessing and cursing, right? Um, so I guess that brings us then to the, the perhaps grandest and final question is why celibacy? Why be a single gay Christian? Why is that right? Yeah, um, I think I'll say in a in a prefatory fashion, by way of kind of transitioning us from the previous conversation. Uh, to me, the the most interesting question uh, when it comes to sexual ethics is always the question of lordship. Um, so, how much right does Jesus have to tell you? that he's calling you to things that might feel inconvenient or might feel like they're not the thing you would have chosen. Um, and I'm always, uh, I'm always much less interested in people's specific answer to like, how are you reading first Corinthians chapter six and first Timothy <laughs> one? And like, what conclusion have, you know, I'm though, I think those are good questions, but I'm less interested in people's answer to those questions than I am to their answer to the question of, what is Jesus allowed to call you to? Um, what amount of what amount of authority do you want to continue to have over your own life? And how much are you willing to be totally yielded to the thing that Jesus calls you to? Um, mm. And uh, when it comes to how we answer that question, um, I think I think there are LGBTQ people who answer that question in all kinds of ways. I also think there are straight people who answer that question in all kinds of ways. Um, and, and, and I think one of the beauties of this conversation is that it can serve as a, it can serve as a way of reminding us all that it's, it's really, really crucial that that be the, the primary question that we ask with the respect to how we understand our lives as disciples of Jesus. Um, what does it actually mean to be a disciple? What does it actually mean to be someone whose life is entirely given over 
in obedience to someone else. When we get to the 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 specific the specific uh, calling to calling to celibacy, which again for me is sort of a pairing of this general understanding of what it means to follow Jesus. My life needs to be totally given over. Then I go to the text, and again, for the reasons I've articulated, came to the conclusion, this seems to be what the text is calling me to. And based on the way I see Jesus interacting with Scripture, I think Jesus takes Scripture really seriously, and I think that means I'm called to also do the same. And so here I am um, with what I understand to be sort of the the two the two vocations into which followers of Jesus are called to steward their sexuality, either in marriage or in singleness. And for me, marriage to a person of the opposite sex, I I, I don't find that uh, a calling to which I am drawn. Um, hmm. And I simultaneously see this this narrative existing, uh, especially in the New Testament. We see this this tremendous honor given to singleness. I mean, we, we, we know that Jesus was single. Um, we are quite confident that the Apostle Paul was also single. And so, I mean, heck, if, if you don't want to learn from single men, we need to seriously rethink why Jesus and the Apostle Paul form like the heart of the New Testament canon. Uh, we, and we see uh, so, some really fascinating discussions of the ways in which singleness can be a remarkable gift to to a gift to the body. I think sometimes we misunderstand the language of gifting and we think that gifts are things that are given to us for like our warm fuzzies. Uh, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, Greg, do you really think you have the gift of celibacy? And I, I'm <laughs> fond of saying, you know, there are some gifts that you wish came with gift receipts uh, because uh, celibacy Well, and, and me, that brings up an interesting question too, right? Is aren't you miserable? Being, being celibate, right? And for those listening on Spotify and iTunes, they can't see, but you're covered in sackcloth and ashes this whole entire interview. You're, you're... It's really, yeah, tears <laughs> No, I'm just kidding. You've been smiling face. the whole time. You're one of the most <laughs> joyous people I've ever interacted with. But but that does raise the question, right? If isn't your life just so miserable? Uh, because that that's a common question, especially from those who don't struggle with homosexuality, is they can't imagine right? God telling you to be single your whole life. That's got to be so heartbreaking and crushing and, and life is just going to be one long tragedy because of it, right? Is that the case for you? Uh, it, is, it is not the case. Uh, I would say, yes, certainly there are challenges in my life. There are beauties in my life. Um, I will, if I may, uh, take an ever so brief linguistic detour uh, and say, yeah. uh, you use the phrase uh, struggling with homosexuality, uh, and there are absolutely people with experiences similar to mine who would use that phrase and find it helpful. Mm -hmm. um, I tend not to prefer that phrase. Uh, at least I find that it no longer resonates with my own experience mm. um, for the following reason that I think are all of us, all of our experiences of sexuality are in some way a reflection of, of fallenness, right? Um, mm. It is not the created intention that I experience sexual temptations at times to lust toward men. It is also not the created intention that straight men experience the sexual temptation to, you know, lust willy-nilly after women. Like, people were created either for singleness or for marriage to a single partner of the opposite sex. And so everybody's experience hmm. of sexuality is in some way post-lapsarian, um, which is to say, post-lapsarian means, like, it's after the fall. It, it comes after the fall. It can't come before the fall, just definitionally. Uh, no, that that's a man. That's that's a number one. That's a beautiful point to make. Uh, number two, that's such a necessary point to make as well. 
especially, um, and, and I know, I mean, my audience is generally younger because they're more skeptical, right? And, and also access to Spotify and everything. Uh, but especially for anyone who's listening that might be a parent who has a child that is having homosexual desires is there is almost this othering that tends to happen as soon as you say that phrase. And so that's a very good point to make is there, there is no them. <laughs> there is no othering. There, there is, there is a, a common shared struggle among us. And maybe if we take that perspective, it'll help us understand each other a bit more collectively. Yeah. Yeah. So, so in a sense, I'm, I'm fine with saying that I struggle with my sexuality in the same way that I hope straight men following Jesus also struggle with their sexuality. <laughs> um, but I don't, I don't think of the experiences of being gay as being definitionally requiring more, more struggle from me. Uh, also, generally, gay people tend not to prefer the word homosexual as like a, a, an appellative. Um, so, you know, for, for a whole host of reasons, I just find other, other framing more helpful. Um, but, but getting back, getting back to the, the primary stream of the conversation here around uh, celibacy, I would say, so, so we have the scriptural vision, right? You have gifts that are given not for the warm fuzzies of the recipient, but they're actually given for the good of the, of the body. They're given for the advance of, of the kingdom of God in the world. And so the clearest place where we see this articulated with respect to singleness is in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, uh, where among other things, the Apostle Paul says, you know, that the single person is concerned with the things of the Lord. You know, he specifically says of single women, like, she is devoted to the Lord in both body and mind. But then he goes on to say, like, but the married person is concerned with the things of the world and how to please their spouse. So their interests are divided. And then toward the end of the chapter, he says, so then, you know, the one who marries, they do okay. But the one who does not marry does better. Um, and I've always, I've always said, I would love to see that passage read aloud at weddings. I just think that would be great. Um, oh my but, gosh, and, that's fantastic. <laughs> and now the, the point here is not to say that like marriage is in some way inferior to singleness. Yeah. Um, because one thing that Paul says near the beginning of that same chapter, he says, uh, you know, one of you has this gift, one of you has another. And so he uses this language of different giftings to say, some of you will be called to this really beautiful vocation of singleness. It will make you a gift to the body in a particular kind of way. But some of you will have a different calling. You will find that in marriage, you can be a gift to the body in a particular kind of way. Now, in those giftings, is there, is there a specific opportunity for kinds of sorrow and sadness? Absolutely. But there's also, I think, a really unique opportunity for the kind of joy that comes with living purposeful life with Jesus. Uh, and, and that, it seems to me, sometimes people have asked me like, but what about when you fall in love? You know, like, won't you fall <laughs> in love and then just find that singleness? And, and I've, I've become fond of saying like, you know, I, I, actually, I actually did fall in love. I just, you know, fell in love with this 2000 year old Jewish dude. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, and it, that maybe makes people uncomfortable. But I think it's it's true in the sense that when I ask the question of the, the primary allegiance around which my life is ordered, the answer is, yeah, my life is so ordered around Jesus that it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to say I'm in some way missing something because I can't order my life around somebody else instead. Because frankly, even if I were a really spectacular dater, like even if I, even if I like just brought in the men in droves and like, had, you know, like <laughs> I, I would never find a boyfriend as good as Jesus, I swear. So, so in that sense, uh, to the degree, to the degree that I deeply believe 
that experiencing the love of God is, is a, a really, really beautiful way to live, then there are gifts within that sorrow. As, as I once told my, my pastor, I'm happy and it's a very complicated kind of happy. Uh, it, it seems to me that that's the thing that we as followers of Jesus are called to, right? The kind of life that is found in losing our lives, the kind of joy that is found in taking up our cross, the kind of happy that is a very complicated kind of happy. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was well said, sir. <laughs> that was Why, very well you. said, but, but I mean, you're, you're so right. Like, like marriage is a wonderful thing and I am married. So I'm speaking from that <laughs> experience, uh, but you know, many you 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 said so much. I want to touch on all of it, but I'll just touch on a couple things here. It's true though. I remember, you know, those first few years I was a Christian. I was single, and as soon as I kind of figured out a little bit of of what my faith was about, and and I started really learning things, and I took off and I served everywhere I could in the church. I think I was doing like at one point like five different ministries at once, and every single night of the week was something in ministry. Uh, but now I'm married and I thinking about doing that almost gives me a heart attack. I'm like, okay, I have responsibilities. I have to keep the house clean. I got to cook dinner and, you know, it's shared responsibilities, right. That, that we both take on, but it's like, I have to serve my wife before I serve anybody else in the entire world. Right. Whereas like when I was single, I could go out and say, okay, I have to serve this 16 year old kid that wants to commit suicide. And I, I get to serve him more than anybody else in the world. And I get to see the life change uh, happen inside of him. And, and man, that's, that's powerful. And, and, and so, you know, all that to say that there's a point to what Paul was saying there, there's a point to what would you just said is that the body of Christ needs people like that who can do that, you know? And, and, and so it's, it's not, it doesn't have to be a, uh, a burden or a chore to do that. And so um, I think also a, a question that comes out of that is what, what are you up to now? How are you serving now? What's, What's your life look like now? Because you you mentioned that gay people don't like to use the word homosexuality, and and uh, you know I I totally understand that because it's it's an identity word in our culture, right? And that's not your identity at all. Your identity is not wrapped up in your sexual orientation. It's so much more than that. Just just, just like you said in 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 your book, uh, it, you're 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 called to a redemptive story. And uh, and for anyone listening, you you've had quite an impact just telling your story on others as a redemptive story. And so that even just that, right. And denying yourself, regardless of sin, regardless of orientation, you don't know what kind of impact you'll have. If you just deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow Christ. And I, th I think you're a good example of that, but yeah. What, what are you up to now? What is, what does life look like now for you? What does life look like now? Uh, so I, I, I live in Boise, Idaho. Uh, I just moved here about seven months ago and I work part, I'm part-time with an organization called the Center for Faith, Sexuality, and Gender. And what we do largely is try to, try to help resource churches and church leaders and uh, to some degree, uh, parents of LGBTQ folks and LGBTQ folks themselves uh, just to have better conversation around human sexuality and gender identity. So uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's some, of, some of what I do uh, in, in my work life and the rest of what I do in my work life is sort of a smattering of writing projects and speaking that I think are interesting and fun and have time for. And, and, then, and then there are, the, there are the, the other parts of my life that, that so beautifully coalesce with that work life. So I'm part of a little church plant here in Boise uh, and, and that's been really beautiful. Um, I'm and I saw you're, you're leading worship for that church plant, right? 
Is that is, uh, is that a thing? Yes. So uh, yeah, we we're we're mostly not gathering all together. We're mostly just gathering in small groups. Um, and okay. so there's there's not great need for somebody regularly leading worship. But I did have the privilege uh, last time we gathered all together, and we hope to be soon gathering all together on a more regular basis once we have you know a physical physical space that we can rent or something. But I, I certainly uh, you know intend to be part of the team of people doing that doing that worship leading. Um, so that so that's really beautiful. That's a gift to me. Yeah, finding finding opportunities to invest relationally. Uh, I love I love the combination of a life spent writing, you know, in solitude in my room, sort of tapping away at my computer, being like, these words are great. And then to like go out and be among people and just experience experience the, the kind of fullness of life that one can experience when when the family of God really lives like family to one another in a in a concrete and tangible kind of way. That's so good. So as we mentioned, uh, you have a book called Single Gay Christian. It is a book I highly recommend to anyone listening. If you want to uh, learn more about Greg's story or even just kind of get behind his brain and see his worldview a little bit, it's so powerful that because again, incredibly, incredibly honest, incredibly real, incredibly helpful. But you also have a new book that you have just come out with not too long ago. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Uh, my my newer book is called No Longer Strangers, uh, and the subtitle is Finding Belonging in a World of Alienation. So uh, it is, it's like Single Gay Christian in the sense that it is a thematic memoir. Um, so instead of focusing specifically on sexual identity, it's focusing on what it means to, to belong um, and also to not belong as followers of Jesus in the world, <laughs> how, we, how we negotiate that tension between, you know, being aliens and strangers, but also being people who, like, theoretically, you should find a place to sleep somewhere. Um, <laughs> what, what, what does it mean to, to live as, as people who belong and don't belong? So, yeah, that book came out actually one year ago today. This is, oh, this wow. is the book's first birthday. So happy birthday to No Longer Strangers. <laughs> that means everyone listening has to go buy it. I, I need to actually pick it up. I have not read it. I will confess, <laughs> but I, I will go pick it up. It sounds like a very needed book, especially after a pandemic where we've all been locked inside for two years. Uh, and, and, and I love the theme. Uh, I just mentioned in my last episode I did on my podcast that one of my favorite books of all time is The Outsiders by S.E. Hilton. And, and there's, there's that theme, right, of Ponyboy Curtis being the outsider, but also realizing, hey, we're all outsiders to some degree, right? The sunset looks the same on the west side of town as it does the east side of town, that, that sense of, of belonging and being an outsider is not lost on the church though. And so that uh, sounds like a very relevant and needed book. I mean, I'm rather fond of it. <laughs> I would hope so. Greg, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for coming on to the Christian Skeptic Podcast. Thank you uh, to everyone who has listened and keep emailing me your questions. Uh, reach out to me on social media, though I'm not on there very often i will respond to email faster uh it's been a pleasure <laughs> to be with you all righty well as always thank you so much for listening and i hope you've enjoyed the show